it would be easy to think that the plague of darkness was just sort of an eclipse, a long period of darkness. But in Torah, in Hebrew scripture, it says people could not see one another, and for three days no one could move about, but all the Israelites enjoyed light in their dwellings. That's sort of a magical darkness. Our sages take that even further, both Rashia, 11th century commentator and teacher, and also Everett Fox, a recent Bible translator, understands that what's being described is not just lack of light, but darkness as a presence. In the same way that our rabbis and sages and tradition teaches that Sabbath and rest are not just exemptions from things. It's not just the absence of work, but a presence of rest. So... This is a presence of rest. This is a presence, like there is a presence of rest, this is a present darkness, a material darkness, a tangible, in some readings, darkness. A darkness, say, some of our traditions, and we call midrash, which is a kind of fan fiction, the darkness that could prevent you from moving. There was an ether, a physical presence, a morass that could be touched and felt. kind of creation. Sometimes with artists who are colorful in their work, perhaps to the point of being oversaturated, I invite them to paint in grayscale, black and white only. See what that would mean to them. But there's another kind of darkness that our sages understand, and Yitzhak Meir Alter, who was known as the Chidushe Harim, he was a rabbi in the 19th century, early part of the 19th century in Gare, Poland, talks about this embodied darkness. And from the phrase that a person couldn't see his fellow, he says there's no greater darkness than a a darkness in which you can't see your fellow human becoming oblivious to the needs of your co-citizen, co-religionist, person with whom you share community and life. There's a darkness of our age, cruelty and ridicule, and the ways in which we have forgotten each other. And I think art at its best can create but never destroy. I look around at trees. My my name, Alon, is a kind of tree. My logo is a tree. I've always thought trees were very special because they only give and never take or certainly don't take anything that others need. Just absorb our carbon dioxide, our excess, and give us shade, shelter, building materials, fruit, produce windbreaks. So I think the Chidushe Harim, Yitzhak Meir Alter, is talking about the darkness of not seeing each other, of taking more than we need, becoming oblivious to the needs around us, becoming oblivious, for example, to the epidemic of the unhoused in most major cities in which rents are out of scale mathematically with what people can afford. He concludes by noting that this is not just the problem of the person who is seen or unseen, but is the person who sees. If you can't see, if you can't have compassion or even empathy for those around you, you can become, he says, stymied in your personal development. The quote in the book of Exodus ends, nor did anyone get up from her place. I think the work of an artist is that sensitivity and attunement, and I speak about it every week, I feel, that we understand the other, that we, as Picasso did in Guernica, understand trauma and pain 
horror and suffering, whether it's ours or any other person's. The book of Proverbs, Proverbs says that only the heart knows its own bitterness. And so I think as Plato did, we can know that each person is fighting a great battle. And we have to have compassion for what we can't see. What is the artist's role in that? How can the artist contemplate and complement or at least suffuse with meaning the darknesses all around us? So at the end of that verse, Exodus 10, verse 23, it says, despite the darkness, the Israelites enjoyed light. There's a mystical concept or a very early concept in, in Judaism that there is, at the creation of light in the book of Genesis, some portion of it, some fota of it, were reserved, or, or haganuz, the hidden light. And that that light that God reserved at creation would later be of use to the righteous in the worlds to come. That in the world beyond, those who are righteous here would get to appreciate and see by that light. I, I don't know if every artist has an insight to that light. I'm sure that's what we all hope for. Them. That's what a moment of epiphany and striving when you find a new color palette, when you find a new guitar song, when you find just the right words for your essay. You're connecting to some sort of Orhaga news, hidden light, but maybe not always. But it is what we strive for. And so, in contrast to that palpable darkness, the hidden light is available to us. We don't need to be paralyzed or crushed by what we can't see in the places of disconnection. Abraham Isaac Cook, who was a rabbi in Mandatory Palestine, later Israel, but never lived to see the construction of the state, describes visiting London. He's a lovely mystic man with a lot of beautiful writings. He said, when I lived in London, I don't know the years for this, but I'm guessing it was early 19th century. He died in 35, 1935. When I lived in London, I would visit the National Gallery. And the paintings that I loved the most were those of Rembrandt. I lived in Boston. There was a beautiful Rembrandt self-portrait there, and I understand where he's going. In my opinion, Rembrandt was a saint. I don't need to draw too far your attention to the idea of an orthodox, very traditional rabbi understanding a non-Jewish person as a saint, but it is a bravery in Cook's mind to extend moral categories to those outside of the faith. In my opinion, Rembrandt was a saint. When I first saw Rembrandt's paintings, they reminded me of the sage's statement about the creation of light. When God created the light, that is in Genesis, it was so strong and luminous that it was possible to see from one end of the world to the other, and God feared that the wicked would use it. What did God do? God secreted it for the righteous in the world to come. That concept of the Orhaga news, which we understand even momentarily was what the Israelites saw by during the Black Plague, during the Plague of Darkness. But from time to time, there are great persons whom God blesses with a vision of the hidden light, the Orhaganus. I believe Rembrandt was one of them, and the light of his paintings is that light which God created on Genesis that day. I can't imagine Rembrandt's genius and talent and the work that went into his creations. And I can't imagine having access to some sort of primordial light that is precedes time and creation and space. 
But it's a beautiful image that occasionally we get insights into a light so vast, palpable, and illuminating that we can see from one end of the world to the other. I think the very opposite of a darkness that prevents us from seeing our fellow, the very opposite of a darkness of disconnection, but a light that stretches from horizon to horizon and joins all. I wonder if I've ever seen that light. And I wonder if you have, and I wonder what artists get to see that light and what's required to prepare. But I'll make one final guess. It requires attention. I think that's the common thread in everything I work on, whether it's a sermon or a meditation or counseling a rabbi or working with an arts organization. It's about learning to attend that which is hard to hear, that which is unsaid and unspoken. And it requires, if not an attention to detail, which my wife, the engineer, has, and I do not, at least a quiet stillness to observe, to be aware. So this week, significantly in the Torah reading, we get the commandment, the injunction to make the new moon, to plan for the new moon, to announce it. And since the entire Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, this is actually a pretty significant issue And how long each lunar month could be and how many lunar months over a 17-year cycle. 19-year cycle? Embarrassing. I feel like I'm, it's 19. I don't know why I said 17. I have to, I'll look it up. And so being specific about the calendar so that one could set the Sabbaths, the holidays, the Jubilee years, the sabbatical years matters. If God cares about calendar, we as humans have to be precise. So there's an entire section of the book of Talmud, of the Talmud, which is a collection, second, second, fourth, fifth century, second, third, fourth, fifth centuries of discussion, conversation, story, law, precepts, uh, home remedies. There's an entire book called Rosh Hashanah, which is the setting of the new year, but contains quite a bit of information about how we set the moons, how we announce the new moon. And, and it's interesting, I hadn't thought of this in preparation for this talk, but a new moon is an interesting transition from absolute darkness to partial light. It would, be, it would have made more sense maybe to set the calendars according to the full moon. The new moon, it always threw me off because it's called the new moon, is, is the one you can't see. Right? So to start a new lunar month, you need to know when you go from absence to presence, just a sliver. So there's a large courtyard, says the Talmud, in Jerusalem. It was called Beit Ya'azek, or all the witnesses. They'd bring witnesses in, right? You had to, they didn't have cal- they didn't have mathematical calculations 18, 19, 17th centuries ago to ascertain exactly when the new moon was. And they even their astronomy was more like astrology. They didn't quite understand the revolution of the planets. In fact, of course, they believed in an Earth-centric cosmology. But anyway, they had to have witnesses. They didn't have telescopes. So the pair of witnesses who arrived first were examined first, and they needed multiple witnesses. Tell us how you saw the moon, in front of the sun, behind the sun, north, south, how big, what was the inclination of the moon, how broad, how narrow. And they used to interrogate the witnesses almost ad infinitum in court cases. They could ask as many difficult questions as they felt need to. And Rabban Gamliel, who was the head of the academy, head of the courts at one point, a prince, would have diagrams on a tablet, and he would 
make them point to a diagram. That's actually how um, how finding a criminal works. They give you a panel. So I'm sort of picturing a panel of potential faces. It's not just one mugshot at a time. They ask you to pick from a panel. It requires a lot of critical discernment to sort through darkness and light, to find the Orhaganus, that hidden light that is reserved for those who are righteous, for those who are kind and considerate, for those who can make art out of their soul, spiritual entrepreneurs, as I often use the phrase. How do we separate light from darkness, live in a space of light that transcends and crosses all boundaries, not in a space of darkness that is so impermeable as to never allow ourselves to see each other, but suffused with the primal and primordial light that Rembrandt knew. Listen carefully. If you don't have an eye for detail, at least you can be precise in your observations, quiet in your awareness, generous in your attunement, stretch and strive to hear, see, feel, and be more.